your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to finish up with part 2 of Confessions of the King. A tremendous, wonderful, amazing passage that is absolutely filled with hope lies before us. And, and as I shared with you last time as we started this chapter, cell phones are from the pit of hell. And so whoever's that is, just beat it with a hammer. Don't want to embarrass you, but I'm embarrassing you. You ever wondered what we did without cell phones? You know, when I when I was first in business, a cell phone weighed about 65 pounds, and it had a battery pack that went underneath your seat, and if you picked it up, your head would actually start to turn, you know, red from the microwaves that cooked your brain and everything. I, Rick still uses his. I've seen him on his motorcycle. He's cruising around, his big old huge... The cool thing was, if you ever lost your hammer, you could drive nails with it. You could use it to jack up your car. There's all kinds of wonderful uses for those old cell phones. So the ones we have now, they're pretty much wordless. But as I shared with you as we began this, this passage of Scripture, this passage gives me so much hope because here you have this pagan, absolutely self-absorbed, Gentile ruler who who is doing everything he can to thwart God's people. He's actually the reason that they're in bondage in Jerusalem. And there's something I need to share with you because it's often missed in the book of Daniel. By the time you begin in chapter 1 and you get to the death of King Nebuchadnezzar, which is coming up, he's going to pass away. Uh, Daniel has has turned my age. He's now 57 years old. And so he, he is an old guy now. So he, he comes into Jerusalem in the captivity as, as Babylon overruns Jerusalem. The people are taken. They're going to spend 70 years in captivity. Daniel does these amazing things with his three friends. They, they start out, they take three years, and they're uh, instructed by the king's people in all ways Chaldean, and they, they're, they're 18. They turn to early 20-somethings. And, and he has now spent... The better part of 40 years in this environment to where things aren't exactly the way they ought to be. They're tough. They're difficult. But he has persevered. He's pressed on. He's pushed forward. And, and so from 15 years old to now King Nebuchadnezzar's last days that we're going to see coming up, Daniel spans almost half a century. And Daniel has served the Lord faithfully during that whole time. He's kept his eyes on the Lord. And things haven't always been good. We've already seen a handful of things that, you know, it's been pretty tough. I mean, I don't know how many of you have been hucked into a furnace lately, but it's probably not many of you. It certainly isn't me. We do go through those fiery trials, those things that we would like to not go through. But Daniel's persevered, and the result of that faith in the Lord is the salvation of this Gentile king, and ultimately his wife. And, and it, it's this movement that's going to sweep through Babylon. We don't know everything God did with it, but from a faithful few to an amazing multitude of mighty warriors for the Lord, there was, there was a movement of the Spirit in Babylon. And so don't lose sight of what's happening in the midst of all of these amazing things. And so tonight, the second part of this study, Confessions of the King, and let's ask the Lord now to speak to us through his word. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this church and just your faithful people and Lord, to come out on a warm night like tonight and sit and listen and, Father, to praise and worship you. I, I just thank you, Lord, for this, this church and pray that you would bless us as a people. Pray that we would be found faithful. Lord, help us to not give up on the Nebuchadnezzars in our lives. Lord, help us to pray without ceasing and to do good to those who persecute us and to persevere and press on and continue, Lord, in the faith and to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. God, it's, it's so much easier to quit. And, Lord, we don't want to be quitters. We want to be like Daniel. Lord, we want to see fruit come from our lives and our time spent on this earth. And, Lord, even if it takes years or decades, God, help us to remain faithful to you. We bless you. We thank you for the power 
and the wonder of your word tonight. We ask that you would bless it as we hear it. Instruct our hearts and our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 27 before we move on just a little bit. It says, Therefore, O king, uh, let my advice be acceptable to you. And remember what he said. He gets right up in his, in his grill. Uh, he, he's, he's talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. He stands face to face with him. And he says, dude, break off your sins and do what's righteous. He, he said, stop doing what you've been doing and just get right with Jesus. He kind of preaches a little bit of hellfire and brimstone here, in a way. But I love the holy boldness. It, sometimes family of God, and you probably all have people like this in your life, and, and I want you to just ponder for a second. Those people that you've been sharing with for, you've been sharing with maybe for decades. Maybe you've got someone in your life, maybe somebody at school or work or whatever, and you've been sharing with them, and you keep telling the truth, and you're living the truth, and you're going through trials, and they're not. Usually, amen, isn't that the way it goes? You know, normally people in the world seem to have nothing wrong in their life, and they get everything handed to them. It's because that's all they get. That's all there is as far as they're concerned. And they work oftentimes a lot harder at those material things. And so, yeah, sometimes it looks like they're being blessed. But realistically, it's just a distraction to them. But there finally comes a point in time when you've got nothing else to do but be very bold. And just say, dude, you're in sin. Man, you've got to stop doing what you're doing. And if you don't stop doing what you're doing, your eternity weighs in the balance. That's hard to say, isn't it? I can tell you as someone who's done an awful lot of counseling, when I sit down with people, my initial desire is to not go, okay, well, this, 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 and this has to stop, and you better do it right now or you're going to perish and burn in hell. But if they come back to me ten times and it's the same problem, I ultimately reach this very same place. You've got to stop sinning, and you better do what God wants you to do. There are no options. You run out of kind ways to say what has to be said directly so they get it. Don't miss that in this passage. There is a time for very direct confrontation of sin. It doesn't mean we have to start there, and it doesn't mean we have to be mean-spirited about it. It doesn't mean that we have to be overly confrontational, but at the end, don't you want that person to know that they need to change? Because if they don't change, chances are they will perish. And so if you've tried the, the nice way, and you've tried the ultimate kindnesses, and you've bent over backwards, and it's not working, sometimes you need to look at them. Let my advice be acceptable to you. This isn't going to be real easy for me to say, but quit sinning and do what's righteous. And I want you to notice that that doesn't bring an immediate great result because we see the procrastination here of the king. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, and perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. He gives him, in essence, an ultimatum. He says there's no chance if you don't stop, but there's a chance if you do stop. And family, this is something really important for us. And we, we talk about and we throw around the phrase cheap grace. Amen? I think most of you have heard that phrase. What cheap grace is, is it's the grace that says I don't have to change. It's the grace that says I can keep my sin and my relationship with the Lord. And I want to remind you, your Bible does not teach cheap grace anywhere. It doesn't teach it. It allows for God's mercy and his overflowing provision and all these wonderful things to be yours. And yes, grace is a free gift. It comes by that faith that you have in Christ. Of course it is unearned. That's what grace means. It's unmerited favor. But make no mistake that grace is not cheap. And the way we make it cheap is by saying, you know what? Well, I can just keep my drug addiction or I can keep my fornication or I can keep my bank robbing, or I can, I can keep my vile temper, I can keep my hate, I can keep my anger, I can keep my bitterness, and I can just continue in those sins indefinitely, and it doesn't matter. If you think that, you are sorely mistaken. And in saying that, that's not to diminish the grace itself. That's to 
impart value to the grace, that the grace is so valuable that it will impart the change if you're truly God's child. And so what should happen when you reach that place and you're unwilling to give up that iniquity, as is being told here to to King Nebuchadnezzar, you're unwilling uh, to stop doing the unrighteous things, excuse me, and do the righteous <coughs> and grab a water bottle, which I don't know where they are. <coughs> we'll now take a short break. Oh, Jeff coughs. That was interesting. So in the midst of all of that, <coughs> I'm guessing that the enemy doesn't want what I was going to say out. So I'll keep pressing on here. <coughs> What I'm getting at here is you you ultimately have to make a choice between the flesh and the spirit. You, You have to decide for yourself this day whom you will serve. You're going to serve the Lord Jesus. It's going to require that you have a new master. Amen? That new master doesn't like the old things. And in fact, he hates the old ways. He's against your flesh. He's against that carnal nature. His word declares that. And so what's going on here in Daniel's life is, is he's saying, oh, no, king, that you can't just pay lip service to Yahweh. You can't just kindly tilt your head up and down. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian. You, You can't just go, well, you know, I mean it most of the time. He's saying there has to be genuine change. Quit doing your iniquity, and start doing righteousness. That's repentance, family of God. And repentance is what happens when you actually get saved. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect, and nowhere does Scripture say you will ever be completely perfect until you go home to be with Jesus. Paul himself made that very clear. But what we ought to be is better than we were the day before. And we ought to care very much that our lives look different than they used to live. That that we're actually engaged in the process of being a little more like Jesus. And so the king, hearing that, begins to ponder. And so verse 28, And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months as he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And so here he is. He's tossed the boys in the fire. He's put up a golden image. He's caused everybody to bow down. They won't do it. And the same guy's leader that is the three men who said, we're not bowing. Daniel comes along and he says, oh, by the way, we're in this together. Remember when you rounded us up in Jerusalem? We serve Yahweh, Lord of hosts. And we're not doing it your way. We're doing it God's way. And that requires, if you want to be like him, you've already acknowledged that he is the God of gods. Remember, he did that. There's none like Daniel's God. He said, if that's true, this is a question that you will end up having to ask anybody whom you lead to Christ. What does that mean to you? What are you going to do with that information? Because there are a lot of people who know about Jesus. There are a lot of people who know about God. There are a lot of people who've spent their life trying to reason from the scriptures. But has that pursuit caused a change of heart? And has that change of heart caused a change of lordship? Because if it hasn't caused a change of heart and a change of lordship, you need to really check and see for yourself if the love of God is in you, and if you're actually saved. Because if you're comfortable in your sin, if you don't care, then I say to you, you have very little assurance that you're actually saved. Now that may be hard to hear in this age of cheap grace, but it's the result of really being saved. And anybody who's walked with the Lord for a period of time will readily admit that what I just shared with you not only is true, but it's foundational to you actually growing in Christ. 
Because what it does is it leaves you bankrupt before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You wake up every day going, God, without you, I am toast. Without you, I can do nothing. But with you and by you and through you, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, that's the thing that's being said to Nebuchadnezzar now. It's like, King, you can't keep doing this. As you read through the Old Testament scripture, I'm sure Daniel was probably familiar with a number of the Old Testament authors, and I I can almost guarantee you because he's in the region uh, just north of there would have been Nineveh and, of course, the Ninevites and the archenemy of Jonah. And, And you remember, I wonder... Think about it, and I shared this with you a little bit last time. How, how many of you have the absolute intestinal fortitude before the Lord to truly desire salvation for people you actually hate? In your heart of hearts, imagine that this is the, this is the nation that has ransacked your homeland. They have murdered countless tens, if not hundreds of thousands of your kinfolk. They have taken the entire population of your country captive to another nation. This is not like King Nebuchadnezzar is, you know, a hero in the eyes of Daniel. But he cares so much about his soul that he's willing to set that aside. You remember the the words of Jonah? You remember what God said? God tells him, go preach to the Ninevites. Chapter 4, it's classic. He says, I know that you're gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love, and you will relent from sending calamity. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm not going to pray for him because you'll save him. <laughs> not going to do it. You're going to save him, they'll get saved, and they'll have to actually like him more. I, I can bet that Jonah was, and Daniel were thinking the same thing. Man, you guys burned the city of Jerusalem and ransacked it. I'm not praying for you. But he does anyway. And so he gives the decree of the Most High God. He looks Nebuchadnezzar in the face and he basically says, it's God's way or the highway. You either do it his way or it's not going to go good for you. Renounce your sin. Do what's right. If you want to prosper, you better do what the Lord wants, is what he's saying. Man, you talk about spiritual guts. You talk about sealing the deal. You talk about being fearless in your faith. That's Daniel. It's interesting that the the phrase translated there to break off in the New King James actually means to redeem. He's basically saying, redeem your sins. Well, can Nebuchadnezzar do that on his own? The answer is no. But the only way that any of us ever have our sins taken care of, the only way that any of us are redeemed is by saying yes to Jesus. I'm giving up my old life. I'm casting it aside. I'm moving on. And so in Old Testament terms, basically Daniel says to the king, repent and receive salvation. He says, you want God's blessing you got to do things God's way. And that's really our message today. If you want God's blessing, you got to do things God's way. There is no other way. Now, God, you know, just because he's providentially good, blesses people who don't deserve it. But make no mistake, his favor rests on his people. In other words, his favor, as in he's looking and he's saying, I'm going to do good to them because they're my kids. And I can share this with you from a father's perspective. When we invite other kids over to our house, and I shouldn't say kids because our boys are now basically adults and they're off at college. But when they were children and we would invite the neighborhood kids over, all of them got general favor. In other words, Jeff was nice to everybody. They all got general favor. But my sons got the special favor of a father. So if there was an extra piece of chicken or there was four extra cookies, they're the ones that got it. It's like the rest of you guys, you guys got family. You just go ahead and go down the street. These are my boys. They get the extra cake, the extra pie, and I'm going to join them because I want to eat with them. It's the same way with the Lord. The Lord's family is the Lord's family. He's providentially good to all, but he is especially good to his children. 
and he blesses those who bless him. The converse is always true. He also curses those who curse him. So if you don't want his blessings, then curse him, and you'll get what you've asked for. Not a good idea, and that's basically what's being said here. You see, the king was to to practice righteousness, and that's the virtue of any great ruler. I think, honestly, that is the biggest decision we're faced with in this presidential election, is who's going to bring, in essence, the greatest sense of a righteous rule back to this country. I think that's the chief question. Neither of our candidates are perfect, to be sure. But what we want is the one that's closer, closest to the righteousness of the Lord. That's what we really want. Because Scripture is very clear there in Proverbs 29. It says, when the righteous rule or are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules or is in authority, the people groan. You see, the people always get to go the direction that the ruler takes them. And it's the reason I believe that we're in a lot of the situations we are right now. And make no mistake, I'm not saying that, you know, there's been perfection in any one party. I just think that we have moved further and further and further and further and further away from the things of the Lord. And because of that, we find ourselves at a place much like Daniel was. We're almost in bondage. We're nearly in captivity. We're captive to national debt that just went over $16 trillion yesterday. Family of God, you need to understand this. That is the gross domestic product of the entire nation annually. That's the GDP. That's what our national gross domestic product is. That's how much debt we have. In other words, 100%. We're already in debt. The accumulated debt exceeds $50 trillion today because of Medicare, Medicaid, and all those entitlement programs that we still have to fund. We need someone who's going to look at that righteously and take care of the poor because we have a moral obligation to do that. But to also not award those things to those people who do not work. And so we need to get back to a moral standard. The same is true here. He's saying, do what's right. Do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Faith, righteousness, grace, all those things are manifested in good works. That's why James 2, there in verse 20, says faith that, that doesn't exhibit itself in works is dead. It doesn't produce anything. It's dead faith. It's not a live faith. Over the centuries, God's people, God's prophets, his apostles, teachers, uh, all of all of us who have ever lived, who have had any time on this earth, have basically had one message. It's repent and believe. Amen. That's what saves. The message of, of ridding the worlds of AIDS will not save anyone. It's a good goal, by the way, but it won't save anybody. The message of fixing the economy won't save anybody. Righteousness coming to a people through faith and hope and trust in the true and living God, which comes through a relationship with the Son, that's what saves people. And when you change hearts, the minds and the actions will follow. But if you just change the mind or if you just change the action and have not changed the heart, the heart will go back to where it once was. And that's why we have these cycles of problems. It's not that tough to comprehend. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the first two verses says there, And as God's fellow workers, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, In time of my favor I heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you, and I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the time of salvation. There is no other time. It's now, it's today, it's always been that way. And the church needs to get back to understanding that that's the reason we're here. Now we've got all the wonderful things that we do. Ultimately, the singular reason that the church exists is to bring people to faith in Christ and thereby glorify God our Father who is in heaven. Because nothing glorifies him except people getting saved. It's that simple. Okay, all of our good works are as filthy rags, is actually what Scripture says. So all the wonderful philanthropic things we do, though they are good, don't 
bring glory in an eternal sense to God the Father. They're just temporal things. And so what we need to focus on is those things that are eternal that matter. And that's where Daniel is in this. That the stubborn-hearted king isn't going to make that choice right away. And so I want to remind you, God loves us so much that he will send the hounds of heaven after each and every one of us and after everyone you know. And as I've shared with you before, just as you see in the life of Pharaoh, as there were in the life of many of the kings of Israel, God works first by kind of knocking on the door going, you know, I really wish you wouldn't do that. That's not a good idea. My word says that you probably should think about that. And then he knocks a little louder, and then he starts to thump you in the forehead with his knuckles, and then he pokes you in the chest a couple of times, and he slaps you upside the head. And then he runs over you with a tractor, and then he kind of squishes you with a meteor. You see, God works incrementally to make his, his point well known. And when I say the hounds of heaven, it, it's like if you've ever watched any of these hunting shows on TV and they use those dumb dogs with tracking collars. and There is no way, no how, that no raccoon is getting away from those dogs, okay? They're outmatched, they're outgunned. They've got radar tracking devices. They're using directional antennas. The dogs start barking. He's over there. That's kind of the way God is. He doesn't lose track of anybody. He's not going, well, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he's a really hard case. I think I'll just give up on him. No, he's going to do what is proportional to reach into Nebuchadnezzar's heart and give him the greatest possibility to say yes to the grace of God. And so, verse 30, the king spoke, saying, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Oh, dear God in heaven. Okay, Daniel has just said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's basically the message he just preached. You need to stop doing what's wrong. You need to start doing what's right. And the response of the king is, ain't I all that? I mean, look at me. I've got my purple robe going on here, wearing a nice gold crown. I mean, after all, check out the furniture. I mean, this is this is Venetian furniture. I mean, we stole this from the Greeks. You know, you, you see, what happens is, is you can hear the truth, but if it's not ignited and, and, and you don't begin to believe it and receive it, it can almost get worse for you. And the more times you reject the truth, the harder your heart gets. And that is exactly what is showing here. And it shows most often in one singular way that is true to all of mankind, and that is the area of pride. Well, look what I've built. I mean, really, come on now. My majesty. Notice what happens next. God has... A limit. And I think you need to really mark this next verse. And while the word was still in the king's mouth. Honor of my great majesty. While that's coming out of his mouth. While he's expressing his self-pride, his indulgence in self, his overconfidence in self. He's had now almost 43 years of Daniel's presence in his court. He's heard the truth. He's seen the truth. He's lived through the truth happening right in front of his eyes. He has heard dreams. He has seen the answer to those dreams. He's watched God's man be right and his man be wrong, and yet he's still stuck in self mode. And while the word was still in the king's mouth, mouth, a voice fell from heaven. You don't ever want to get to this place. You don't ever want anybody you know to get to this place to where they are so filled up with themselves that they can see the truth, they can hear the truth, they can know the truth. 
and they can still boast about their own abilities before a holy God. That is a very dangerous place, and it does not bring about good results. Voice comes from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. He he doesn't say, you better repent. He doesn't say, God doesn't say, well, I'm going to give you one more try. There's something very important for you to see here. God has his limits, and he will not be backed into a corner. He will not be punched in the chest. He will not be forever defamed. He has his limits. And when he has had his limit, when he's had his fill, ultimately, Jesus is going to come again. Okay, That's what's ultimately going to happen when the world fills up the cup of wrath and the time of Jacob's trouble comes. God will have said, enough already, it's over. But in a personal sense, there's also a time for every individual. And it's extremely important you get that from this passage of Scripture. God will go along for a long time, and he's gracious, and he is compassionate, and he is abounding in mercy. Those things are all true. But he has his limits, and he does not strive forever. In this case, God puts his foot down, and Nebuchadnezzar actually repents, and and I believe is saved. But you have the other option. And you don't want God to put his foot down and say to you, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be as the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times this shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he chooses. Okay, I tried to be nice. I tried to be kind. I tried to do it the easy way. I've let you get by with this for 43 years. But I'm done. Here's the deal. This one's going to cost you, and it's going to cost you big time. Now, in an eternal sense, he's still giving him another chance. But I want you to notice what happens to him. King Nebuchadnezzar is now going to become like a wild beast and eat grass and wander around the fields of the kingdom that he so wisely said is mine. How many people do you know, because they poked God in the chest, pointed their finger at him, wandered around in the wasteland of a destroyed kingdom, eating grass like an ox, like a beast in the field? I, I, I did myself. I spent years wandering in the wilderness because I refused to repent of my sin. That isn't what God wants. God wants us to turn and be blessed. He, his word says, look and live. He says, the children of Israel are in the wilderness. What a weird thing. Okay, put a bronze serpent on a pole, put it in the middle of the camp. And if anybody gets bit by these poisonous serpents, all they got to do is look at it and they'll live. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. Just look and live. Be saved. That's all he wants us to do. Just turn away and look at the Lord. And so he says, in that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and he ate grass like an oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like the bird's claws. Humanly speaking, the king had every reason to be proud. Amen? He really did. I mean, there was no greater kingdom. From a human perspective, he could have been like Bill Gates. He could have been like he just announced today, for instance. Apple is now the most valuable corporation in the world. $645 billion is its announced worth today. You know, Steve Jobs are still alive. Yep, I built that. I guarantee you when he was trusting in Buddha and he met Jesus face to face, I don't think he really cared all that much. Now, I don't know because I wasn't there with his last breath, but I don't believe he repented of his sin and asked Jesus into his life. Matter of fact, he was a Christ hater. That's the reason you can't get good Bible software for your Apple products. Very, very, very limited. He hated Christians. I guarantee you that's not doing him a bit of good now. Most valuable 
corporation in the, in the history of the world. Apple Computers right now is worth more than over half of the net worth of the values of the countries in the world. In other words, it has a value that exceeds that of, say, Zambia or Zimbabwe or Uganda. It's actually worth more than the whole country. But it won't save them. didn't save them. Pride is a horrible, horrible thing. And all that power, as Scripture plainly declares, will corrupt. The highest point of self-glorification after all these things, Nebuchadnezzar's mind under the power of God snapped just like that. I don't want to take that chance. And I don't want anybody else to take that chance. When I see people playing chicken with God, it's a scary thing. I don't know if you guys have ever played that game. I've played that game on a bicycle before. I was not real bright when I was a child. (laughs) Two guys on bicycles with cards in the front spokes, pedaling as fast as they can at each other, is one of the dumber things that you'll ever see in life. But I have done that. No less with my own brother. Um, I won. It was a sure matter of gravity and, and inertia, but... But it's the dumbest thing. You know, you're, you're, you're flying at each other. and You're like, okay, who's going to give up first? Remember this. God's outside of space and time. He can keep going, go right through you if he wants. You know, he doesn't have to dodge at the last minute. He can just keep going. And yet sometimes we play chicken with him. Is his word true? Did he mean what he said? Did he say what he meant? Not very wise, and it didn't work well for Nebuchadnezzar. It's widely believed, interestingly enough, this is a very, very well-documented event uh, in history. Uh, in, a, in, in several old, very old third-century documents and tablets exist in cuneiform that validate this particular aspect of Nebuchadnezzar's life. And in fact, um, Berossus, who was a Babylonian priest in the third century, actually recorded in his in his writings called Contra Applium, he said that Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, had been invaded by a sickness, and he did that for after he reigned for 43 years, which, by the way, is exactly how many years Scripture says existed between Daniel first getting to Babylon and this point in time. Uh, Negathensis also said the same thing in about 280 B.C. said that Nebuchadnezzar had been overcome by a, some type of a disease, had lost its mind, and had wandered around outside of the city for seven years. So this is a historical fact. The dude cracked. He, he was a nutcase. That's not unusual. As a matter of fact, there, there have been uh, one of the most famous tablets that's in the historical evidence of the truth of scriptural records. It's a book by Sir Henry Ralston. It says and recorded there by a Babylonian inscription that was actually written at the time of Nebuchadnezzar and dated to such, said, says this on page 185 of that particular book. It says, For four years the seat of my kingdom, the city, did not rejoice in my heart. For all of my dominions I did not build again the high place of power. My precious treasures, my kingdoms I did not lay out. In the worship of Merodach, my lord, the joy of my heart of Babylon, the city of my sovereignty, I did not sing his praises and did not finish his altars, nor did I clear out his canals, for I was reft of mind. And so this happened. This is a historical fact. The dude cracked because he went against God's grace. He said, I don't believe it. Pride got in the way. Same thing, by the way, happened to King Saul, didn't it? First Samuel chapter 16 tells us a story. So the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and the evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Make no mistake about it. God will do what God has to do to get your attention. And you don't want him to have to take extraordinary measures, not in your own life nor anyone else's that you know. Really anyone's. But certainly no one that you know and care about. And and I think, honestly, because we can see Daniel's character through all this, I think Daniel was in horror when this happened to Nebuchadnezzar. I think he looked at what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and he said, Oh, no. He went mad, acted like a beast. 
Picking up now in verse 34. And at the end of time. And I love this. It shows God's sovereign plan. God had a plan all along to not let this go on forever. The good news and the bad news simultaneously. The good news is God has a plan and he knows exactly what he's doing. The bad news is unless we say yes to what God is saying, we may well go through things that God does not intend for us. So when I share with you that you can either have God's permissive will or God's perfect will, the choice really is yours. You can either have what God doesn't want to give you, which is his permissive will, or you can have his perfect will, which is exactly what he wants to give you. Had Nebuchadnezzar repented at that point in time and said, you're right, Daniel, I'm giving it up, I'm not doing any more wickedness, as a matter of fact, we're having a Bible study in the palace tomorrow, and you're leading it. He could have said that. Because... Uh, Enough's enough. I've heard all I need to hear. I've seen all I need to see. I'm done messing with God. I'm repenting today. He could have done that. And God would have blessed him for it. But God loves him so much. And and as, as Peter so rightly said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If God wishes that, then he will do what is necessary to make sure as much as he can from his side, because he won't force you to be saved. Because then it's not a choice that you make. It's just simply him pressuring you. But what he says then is, here's life and here's death. You choose which one you want. But he is not going to let you choose death without trying to stop you. He's not going to let you destroy your life without making life real miserable for you. And you see this all the time. How many people do you know whose lives are just falling apart and you can see the hand of God in the fact that their life is falling apart? It's just like the Lord's taking down everything they hope and trust in, but they won't repent. They won't come to the Lord. And God's saying, because I love you, I'm letting everything you trust in come to, come to nothing. Does that with Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the time, the end of the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to the heaven. I love this. Check this out. It worked. (laughs) God got through. But it was very costly for Nebuchadnezzar. I lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. In other words, he said yes to, to the Lord. He said, okay, I get it. Man, can you think for a moment what he must have been thinking about what had just happened to him? Okay, so now it's, it, it, this is almost half a century after Daniel shows up in Babylon. And all that time God's dealing with him. There's again good and bad here. The awesome thing is, God sent the hounds of heaven after, after Nebuchadnezzar and wouldn't let him go. Said, no way. But he also let stuff happen to him. It's just like, man, can you imagine being completely out of your mind for seven years, wandering around, eating grass in the fields to where your fingernails grew out like the claws of an eagle? I don't know if you've ever seen some of those, those freakish, you know, Sikh and Chinese guys that let their fingernails grow out and they get like this long. just like gnarly. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Seven years. Man, if I let my toenails grow for seven weeks, I can put my own eye out. It's like, can you imagine seven years, like these claws, and it's just, he turns into this hairy beast. It's just like, yuck. It wasn't what God wanted. It's what Nebuchadnezzar asked for. And you can see the power of choice. God gives every one of us the opportunity to be saved. He speaks that love, and he does it in lots of different ways. But he says, you know what? Here it is. Here's grace. You can either receive it, which will cause you to repent, which will cause you to turn and believe and be saved, or if I have to, I'll turn you into a wild beast. I'll take away everything you have. I'll make you so you cannot trust in anything that you once trusted in. God doesn't want to do that. 
but he will do that. And that's the thing you can share with people. So I've shared with many of you before. I know people emphatically that the Lord has ultimately killed to save their family. I know of two pastors that are, that are currently, I hope and pray, with Jesus. They were just literally hell-bent on destroying their family, destroying their wives, and living in open rebellion and sin. And pastor after pastor after pastor said, repent, repent, do not keep doing this, and ultimately God took them out. God will do what he has to do. For his dominion is an everlasting kingdom. Notice the acknowledgement here. And his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Now this is a changed guy, amen? And he, he, he was previously saying, check out my kingdom, it's awesome. I mean, look at me, I'm awesome. Not only am I awesome, my kingdom's awesome, but my people are awesome, and you're not. He's saying exactly the opposite now. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is a plain and open acknowledgement that there is exactly one God and he rules the universe. Heaven and earth are his. And at the same time, my reason returned to me. For the glory of my kingdom, my honor, my splendor returned to me. My counselors, my nobles restored to me. And I was restored to my kingdom, and an excellent majesty was added to me. It's interesting, the phrase there that's translated excellent majesty means the glory of the Lord returned to him. It literally means that he glorified God with his kingdom. And so it appears that after this time of rebellion, God doing exactly what he said he would do, Nebuchadnezzar gets it, he repents, he says, you know what, it's all about you, Lord God. That God restored to him. It's the same thing that God did to Job, amen? The exact same message. You know, he lost everything. Job had a little tough time with God there for a while. I think we can all identify with that one. Job didn't do exactly all the things that he should have done. He had a few issues with the Lord. He actually challenged the Lord to a little bit of a verbal battle. Always a bad thing to do, by the way. God had to spank him a little bit. He said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the heavens? You see, God always has the upper hand. He said, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. That's Abraham-like praise there. I extol and I honor and I praise. I give worship to the King of Heaven. And all of those works are, notice this, truth. Very important. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So as he declares that God is ultimately all truth, He's trusting in an Old Testament sense, just as Abraham did, just as Isaac did, just as Jacob did, just as all his Old Testament saints did. They didn't have the full picture yet, but he says, God, Daniel's God, I extol you, I trust in you, you alone are truth, you alone are God in heaven, you alone are the one who holds the keys to the heavens and the earth. And he says, and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able, notice this, to put down. And so he admits his own faults. He repents. He says, I was walking against God. I was in pride. These are his words, by the way. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that at the end of time, nobody's going to stand before the Lord and tell him what to do. There are seven, seven blessings here as we, as we wrap this up tonight. There's so much in these, these last few verses. There are seven, seven blessings that are restored to Nebuchadnezzar. God wants to bless. He is a blessing God. Notice that his understanding returned, his reason returned, 
The glory of his kingdom was restored. His honor, his brilliance were returned. His advisors, his nobles were returned to him. Uh, his reestablished kingdom was made right before the Lord. And splendor or glory was actually given to him. Now, as a child of God, you, you have to realize that, that to some degree the glory of the Lord is in you. Amen? So these things are all the same things that you and I get as children of God. My understanding is completely different. Amen? I now have spiritual understanding. My reason is guided by God's principles. The glory of his kingdom is now alive in me. The honor, the brilliance, the things that I gave away when I was walking in sin returned to me. Advisors, nobles, kings, those people come and ask me for counsel, so I am able to turn them to others who have the same thing. You can see how this just applies to each person who accepts Christ. Miraculously, no new king actually ascended to the throne during that seven-year sickness. That's God. Can you imagine if the United States of America was without a president for seven years and we were ruled by Congress? You know, the Secretary of State takes over. No, it's first the Vice President, then the Secretary of State. We're just like, we're a mess now with the President. Imagine what it would be like without. It was even worse in Babylon. He actually ruled the entire kingdom. And yet nobody rose to power. Nobody tried to take over. The king recognizes God in some very specific ways in these first several chapters. He's the revealer. He's the deliverer. He's the eternal God. He's sovereign. He actually is the king. You can see that there are just so many things that Nebuchadnezzar finally grasps in all of this. Family, when you think about what King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged here, it's the very same things that every one of us has to acknowledge in the lordship of Jesus Christ. They are the same things. Things. Now, he's not inviting Jesus, per se, into his heart because Jesus hasn't gone to the earth yet, has not lived his life yet, has not died on the cross, and has not risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. But he is trusting in the very same way that Abraham trusted, same way that David trusted God in faith. By the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, I just jotted down, Literally 21 different things that, that Nebuchadnezzar learned about God. That praise and honor and glory belong to God alone. That God is the king of heaven who rules the earth. These are all just from the first four chapters here. That God's works and his words are truth. That God's ways are just that God blesses those who fear him rather than man. That God is actually the king of kings and lord of lords. That God's the revealer of mysteries. That God's presence is with those who fear him and trust in him. That God can silence the boasts of man that true servants of the Lord will worship exactly the one true God. That there's no other God who can deliver people except for our God. That there's no other God who can do miracles except for our God. That God's kingdom is everlasting. That generations of men will continue on the earth for a long time. That the Spirit of God can actually dwell in men. Remember, he said that about Daniel. That God gives rule to whomever he wills to rule. In spite of what man does, wise men of the earth are incapable of knowing and understanding spiritual truth unless God reveals it to them. You can't learn it. There's no book on spiritual truth. You go read it and you get spiritual truth. One of my favorites, sin never pays. Rebellion never pays. Pride causes a downfall. Amen? Isn't that what Proverbs 16 says? Pride 
goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It's exactly what it says. That anyone who walks in pride is asking God to humble them. That God demonstrates his love that while we're yet sinners, he dies for the ungodly. Amen? You see all these things? You see the gospel. It's the total gospel laid out in the book of Daniel. You put all those things together, go to the New Testament, and that's exactly what you find Jesus putting forth as truth. So in 562 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar dies, and one day you and I are going to see him when we get to heaven. There's some interesting prophetic gleanings you can get from this passage of Scripture as well. That Yahweh's dealings, God's dealings, the Lord of hosts dealing with Nebuchadnezzar um, really kind of give us an insight into all of human condition. We can see how man has really not changed a whole lot since that time, really since the beginning of time. You can you can see Cain slaying Abel in this. You can see pride that that led to the downfall of of Lucifer himself in this. I mean, it's the very same things. Sometimes people, you know, we we have the progressive movement now, right? It's not liberals; it's progressives. And I don't want to be too political here, but progressive is another way to say we're better. We're more advanced. We've pushed forward. What it really mean, means is we've figured out new ways to do old things. That's all it means. Because as Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. And it's got the same basic issues man's always had. We have new, new and different ways to, you know, to make them look far more complex. There are subtleties to them that are unique to our day and time, but the basic things of pride, arrogance, lack of spiritual knowledge, uh, inability to see the hand of God and the things that are going on in the world, the, the lack of trust in him, the lack of belief that there is a creator God who dwells in heaven, who governs the affairs of men, simple things that our forefathers understood very, very clearly. You see, when you look at the founding of our nation, all men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When you think that about that, you, you can't get past the all men are endowed by their Creator part. Amen? So if there's a Creator... And we're endowed with certain unalienable rights, the first of which is life. That assumes that there's someone that governs the affairs of men. Amen? Always has been. And God's had his hand in humankind and in our condition while we've been on this earth from day one. Nebuchadnezzar thought much like progressives do today. Ah, we don't really need to take this God thing too terribly far. After all, we're, we're smarter than that. You know, we realize today that, you know, so many things are just diseases. and There's nothing anybody can do about it. And, you know, we really shouldn't actually trust God's word to say what it means and mean what it says. We can interpret it how we want. We can interpret the Constitution how we want. We can do anything how we want because we're so much smarter than anybody who's gone before us. Can I say to you, we may have a lot more books, but we're still dumb as bricks. Because the big things are still the big things. And the main things are still the main things. We just have different ways to thumb our nose at God than we used to. But they're still the basic same things. Pride is an abomination to the Lord because it desecrates his name and his holiness. Pride assumes that, in essence, the one who possesses it is greater than God. That's what pride is. You can talk about it all you want in general terms, but in its very deepest sense, it's you saying you know more than God does, and therefore you should trust in you. That's what pride actually is. God works in all kinds of ways to break pride. Like Nebuchadnezzar, 
It's not good if you make him take the rough road. The good news is that he got a second chance. Now, I want you to notice a few things about Nebuchadnezzar's conversion as we wrap this up. There was a false sense of self-significance. You can see this in all humankind, by the way. There was a false sense of self-significance. There was a false sense of self-security. There was a target, in essence, of God's mercy and compassion. In other words, the same person who is secure in self, God was still saying, I want to show you mercy and I want to show you compassion. There was a warning of coming judgment. God warns of a coming judgment. There was an invitation to repent. God gives the invitation to repent. There was a drastic event in Nebuchadnezzar's life before he actually got saved. There was an attitude, there was a behavior of Nebuchadnezzar just exactly like a wild beast. And there was a humbling by God. All of these things, pretty much in that order, is how it still goes. I think I'm okay. I don't need God. How many people have you had say to you, well, I don't really need God. If there is a God, I don't need him. I'm smarter than that. Matter of fact, you Christians, your God's just a crutch. He's not even real. You just need him as a crutch. Anybody ever heard that one? You know, It's because you're weak. It's because you're not strong enough. It's because you don't have a self-worth. It's because you don't have enough of you. Now my problem is I have too much of me. I am full literally of me at times. And so God brings us humbling experiences. How many wealthy people stripped of their wealth? How many beautiful people stripped of their beauty? How many powerful people stripped of their power? And at the end of that they find the Lord Jesus. That's how God works. He won't share his glory with anyone. Daniel just simply told the king to break off his sin and practice righteousness. It's the same way that it's going to be all the way until the very end, beloved. That's going to be the message of the tribulation. When the church is raptured out of here, the message of the tribulation is stop doing wickedness and do righteousness. That's what's going to happen. The message is still going to be the same. Because the goal really is still the same. God desires all men to be saved. He wants all Israel to be saved. He wants all humankind to be saved. He wants your friends, your neighbors, your relatives to be saved. He's rescued each one of us, as just as Colossians says. Have you ever thought about what Colossians says? He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Thank you, Jesus. Just reaches into our hearts. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I have kind of those epiphany things to where it's just like, yes, Lord, I remember the day you reached into my heart. The gospel became so true, I could not help but go forward and give my life to Jesus. I mean, it was like someone was sticking me in the back with a spear, get up and go, and if you don't, you're going to die right here. Praise God. Rescued us, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. That's what Colossians chapter 1, I think it's verse 13 and 14 says. In whom we have redemption, and we have forgiveness of sins. And it goes on a little bit later there in Colossians 1 to say, You were once alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But what it says is now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body being broken. He said the same thing to Nebuchadnezzar. He said your mind was evil. You were messed up. He said, but I want to reconcile you. It's God's plan. It's the way he's still working. We need to go out and preach that message. Stakes are high. They're getting higher every day because I don't know how much time is left. I don't know how much time is left before God says enough to the world. I don't know. I don't believe it's much. Might be tonight. There may not be time. If you're here tonight and you've never professed Christ as Savior, it's time now. It's now. It's not tomorrow. 
Don't procrastinate like Nebuchadnezzar did. It cost him seven years of roaming around like a wild beast. And were it not for God's mercy, he wouldn't have been saved. There are people you know who need to hear, stop doing what's wrong, start doing what's right, because God loves you. And we don't know how much time we have. We need to preach like Daniel preached. And we need to live like Daniel lived. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, tonight I want to first just pray if there's anyone here that has never invited you, Jesus, into their life, never said yes to you as Savior and Lord, God, that they would not leave this place without stopping first to bow their heart before you, repent of their sin, and ask you into their life. Lord, it's so simple. I'll be people ready to pray with them after service. God, we thank you for that. We thank you it is that simple. But that simple act of faith produces in us good works. It produces in us righteousness. It produces in us transformed hearts and minds and lives. And we pray that that transformation would just continue in each of us. Or we don't know how much time we have. We know that you're merciful and you're kind, that you abound in mercy. But, Lord, we also know that there's going to come a point in time when the last day will have arrived. And we believe it's close. And so God, just cause us to be alive with the message of the gospel. Help us to share that with our friends and our family, our neighbors. Lord, just random people that we meet. Truly, Lord, what do we have to lose? You alone are Lord. You alone can save. You alone are truth. You're the way. You're the only way. And so, Lord, we profess that tonight corporately. We invite you to change in us the things that need to change. Continue to work in and through this church, Lord. Our community needs Jesus. Lord, and we're in it. And Lord, we're not supposed to be of this world, so help us to stand out. Help us to be different. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.